Welcome to the 2AMT Podcast. I'm David J. Lohr. James Thurber once wrote, There are two kinds of light, the glow that illuminates and the glare that obscures. In the wake of The Agony and Ecstasy of Steve Jobs by Mike Daisy, Time Out New York theater critic Adam Feldman convened a panel of artists and journalists to discuss truth in theater. The conversation touched on questions of authenticity, ethics, and artistic license in nonfiction-based or documentary theater. The panelists include Steve Cosson, Artistic Director of The Civilians, playwright performers Jessica Blank and Taylor Mack, and critic reporters Peter Marks of The Washington Post and Jason Zinneman of The New York Times. The panel took place March 22, 2012 at the Public Theater, where Agony and Ecstasy just closed. The panel is preceded by remarks by Oscar Eustace, Artistic Director of the Public. Good evening, thank you. Um, I'm Oscar Eustace, uh, the Artistic Director here, and um, Adam Feldman called us a long time ago, uh, at least 48 hours ago, um, and suggested that uh, he would like to put together a panel of people to discuss the various issues that have been raised by the agony, the ecstasy of Steve Jobs and the publicity around it in the last few days. And the public is the kind of place where we should talk about these things. And so we have made it possible. And I thank all of you for being here tonight. I thank Adam and the entire panel that's about to follow me for um, being here tonight to talk about this. This is obviously uh, an issue of real seriousness and real importance to those of us in the theater community. And I should say the public is not producing this event. And hence, I cannot tell you with certainty that anything that these people will say will be the truth. <laughs> but, however, that kind of speaks to our issue. I'm going to take the right of the landlord to say just a word or two about the issue before I get out of the way of uh, these fine folks, which is, uh, in, this was a surprise to us as it was to most folks. And in the immediate aftermath of this, of course, we said things, I said things. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about this continuously ever since. And it's important, I think, right now for me as artistic director of the public to further elucidate what I think and I think what the public thinks about this. Because in my initial responses, um, I, it's not that I disagree with anything I said necessarily, but we were leaning on a distinction between journalism and theater that upon further intelligent reflection, I think, does not hold water. Uh, we feel, uh, I feel, that this is not a distinction that actually is an appropriate distinction, particularly for a theater like the public that has prided itself for half a century on saying, asking, indeed at times demanding, that the theater has a place, not just in the entertainment world, but in the discourse about the large civic issues of our time. We don't get to say that we deserve a place at the table, but that we're not accountable for what we say there. So in light of that, I have spontaneously here a written statement, <laughs> which I'm going to read to you guys. And please don't take frantic notes, because we'll post it on our website since we can get our website to work. Um, <laughs> you know, we, do, we do the best we can. Um, uh, and what it's going to say when it's on the website and therefore becomes real, I'm also going to say to you now, standing on stage. Every performance creates a contract, implied or explicit, between the stage and the audience. 
That contract directs how the audience should view the performance, what the rules of engagement are. It covers everything from the physical relationship between actors and audience to the border between fiction and fact contained in the performance. Our job as a theater is to create that contract anew with every performance and then to fulfill it. We did not do that with the agony and the ecstasy of Steve Jobs. We would not have called it nonfiction had we known that incidents described in the piece were fabricated. We didn't know, and the result was that our audience was misled. The piece had a powerful, positive impact on the world, and we are proud of that. But that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility of honoring our contract with our audience. As artists, we know that truths do not always hinge on facts. However, when we present pieces whose power depends on their claim to authenticity, we must hold ourselves to a different and higher standard of accuracy. We must ascertain to the best of our ability that the facts presented in the piece are, in fact, facts. We will do so in the future. Um, so I hope that's the last prepared statement we're going to have to hear tonight. Uh, and with that, again, I want to thank Adam, and I want to thank this distinguished group of artists and critics who have come here for this discussion. So thank you for being here. Adam. Thank you, Alfie. So, some of you may have heard that there was a monologue. And some of you may have also heard that not everything in this monologue was entirely actually accurate. Um, and that parts of this monologue may or may not have been uh, exaggerated or uh, fabricated for dramatic purposes. And that this became a scandal when it left the proscenium and moved on to the radio waves. And that is what we're going to be discussing today because a lot of people have been talking about the radio and a lot of people have been talking about the facts. And I think uh, we need to talk about the theater as well. But I'm not sure that the theater is the same thing as the radio and I'm not sure that the theater is the same thing as the facts. And so uh, I want to talk about that today and I'm extremely grateful to the Public Theater for making the space available, to Oscar Eustace and to General Carter who magically came through with this space that we're in now. And I want to thank these five amazing people, all of whose work I've admired greatly in the past, for making time and for you know, sharing their opinions. We'll see where it goes. Uh, and I'll just introduce them briefly. Um, right immediately to my left is Stephen Carson. Uh, he's the artistic director of The Civilians, one of my favorite off-Broadway theater troops. Uh, they are the, um, in my opinion, brilliant uh, makers of such theater pieces in the past as This Beautiful City and uh, I Am Lady's Lunch and the upcoming You Better Sit Down, Tales of My Parents' Divorce. Uh, these are non-fiction-based, interview-based uh, works of theater. Uh, to his left is uh, Jessica Blank, um, actor and uh, playwright, uh, most notably for this purpose of uh, a play called The Exonerated and another play called uh, Aftermath. Uh, to her left, uh, Jason Zinneman, theater critic and uh, film critic and other than critic for um, <laughs> comedy. Nicely. Um, to his left, uh, Peter Marks, the chief theater critic for the Washington Post. And to his left, uh, Taylor Mack, uh, another one of my favorite uh, off Broadway performers. 
uh, a, a playwright and a performer, and one who has drawn also on his own experiences in memoir-based <coughs> theater works, including Young Ladies Out and Krista Kiermack. So thank you to all five of these people. So now I should just clarify at the beginning that we have had no prior collusion, we have had no time <laughs> to discuss any of these issues except in the basic uh, Twitter and Facebook exchange. We were so, blindfolded back then. Yes, blindfolded. <laughs> Nobody even knew each other's names until we, uh, until we showed up here today. So you know, we're, what, what I'm going to try to do here is just try to lead an actual conversation if that's possible. And we'll see if anything of interest comes of it. And I, I, I can't imagine that it won't with this group, but I'll just throw it out there. Uh, Oscar alluded to the distinction that Mike Daisy had made in his first response, the first level response, when all of this uh, scandal controversy happened. And that response was to say, my mistake was to take this to this American life, uh, where it didn't belong, because that was a different setup. That was a setup of news. And in fact, this was a theater piece. And I stand by it as a theater piece, but not as news. And a lot of people have trouble with that distinction. And some people do not have trouble with it. Uh, but I want to use that as the jumping off point because Oscar obviously uh, clarified in his opening remarks that he does not accept that distinction. And I'm not sure that, uh, that I agree with Oscar. I don't know what I mean, I do. Uh, but I don't know. I actually don't know. So uh, I'd like to start with that. Um, and uh, I guess we'll start with Peter. Um, do you have any feelings about the relevance of that uh, distinction? Do you think that that holds water? Uh, this is, these are all on, and hi everybody. Uh, it's nice to be here tonight, and I'm really impressed by how quickly this came together and how many of you showed up. Uh, I, I'll be completely confessional here. I took every word that Mike said in this piece as gospel. I thought it was all true. I may be an idiot. I may be a dupe. I just believed every word. Uh, and maybe that was because, partially, I am seduced by his, his work, uh, by his style, by his presentation, uh, by the, 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 the compelling force of which he uh, tells us things. So I don't make the distinction between, I don't even know what it, when, when people say there's journalistic truth and theatrical truth, I don't even know what theatrical truth means. Uh, for me, it, truth is truth. And I know the difference, for example, uh, between a playwright conveying through a character some moral force or some, some, some idea like a Willie Loman. I understand what, why my conscience is pricked metaphorically even, and I think there is a distinction in that sense between that and what a, a person who's standing before you and saying, this is me and this happened to me, um, what that means. So no, I don't, I don't buy that there's two standards of truth uh, for us to, to, to sort of try to parse. Jason, I guess we'll, we'll start with the two journalists on the panel. I mean, I think uh, one thing, I, reason I think this is a great thing that Adam put together is that there's uh, most of this discussion has been going on uh, by people who've never seen Mike Daisy's work or know very little about it, know very little about the theater. And I tend to think uh, the people who've seen his work, we can have a more informed discussion about this distinction because I think it's actually... I find this distinction unsatisfactory for a different reason, which is that uh, Mike Daisy is, if you say Mike Daisy, I'm theater and not journalism, he's not a traditional theater artist. His process is very different than most theater artists. He, do, he doesn't have a script as the most obvious start, right? Which most people, a lot of people don't realize. It changes every day. It, it, his process is actually much more similar to a stand-up comic um, than anybody else in that he builds the show on stage. 
He also describes, so, you know, within the realm of theater, he's an anomaly. He calls himself not an actor or a playwright, he calls himself a storyteller. And as it happens, I'm working on a story right now about this genre, which is both the oldest genre in the world, you know, storytelling, but also a fairly new genre, which is a sub-genre of comedy and theater. And even in that world, Mike Daisy is an incredible anomaly, um, for reasons that are they're varied. But what I take from this is that to judge whether or not it was right or wrong what he did, we need to look not at these simplistic labels. We, I mean, although I think the labels on how the how the, the theaters promote these shows matter, but we need to look at actually what his intent is, what his process is, and what is the unspoken contract that he has with an audience. And in that sense, he's identical to journalists because uh, journalists and theater people have this unspoken contract with their audience. And uh, if you break it, I know in journalism, as somebody who was at the Times right after Jason Blair and worked at a summer as a New Republic with Stephen Glass, there's nothing more important than, than there's nothing more, it be more damaging than losing your credibility of your reader. Well, okay, but when you introduced him, though, you said uh, that he works on it like a stand-up comic. Now, if you're watching Sarah Silverman on stage, and Sarah Silverman tells jokes on stage in the persona of Sarah Silverman, playing a version of Sarah Silverman that we kind of know is not really Sarah Silverman, if, if she makes a joke and we say, wait a second, Sarah Silverman's last boyfriend wasn't Mexican, she's lying. Uh, aren't we making a mistake about the nature of stand-up comedy? I don't think Mike Daisy's form is like stand-up comedy. His process is like stand-up comedy. There's serious differences between Mike Daisy does and Sarah Silverman. And I think that you, uh, although they're both funny, they're both funny, no question. Um, but uh, the, uh, I think that uh, Mike Daisy's goal, clearly with this show, is to say, uh, one of his goals, I went to this place, I saw these things, and there's a certain authority he has from saying that, and he says in his recent Georgetown speech, you know, I wanted to take this out of the theater. I mean, this issue of the theater, this distinction almost seems less relevant a couple years later. I don't think that's his main argument anymore. He clearly wanted to make change. He was thinking, as I see it, more as much like an activist who wanted to, was passionate about these labor conditions, and Sarah Silverman just wants to make you laugh. But there's also, I mean, beyond that, you know, there's kind of, I looked at that when he said that, as kind of, that's the ideal for a theater artist. They want to take it outside the theater. I mean, what fills, what makes you feel like you're having an impact on the world more than if it moves beyond the, the theater? I mean, I mean, that's what, he, you know, the civilians and, um, and Jessica's work uh, does. I mean, it's, it's, an, it, it's an absolute attempt to do that. So I, I see that as a kind of, I didn't see that as a, necessarily a damning thing. I thought that was something that, Ennobled what was Just to throw these things out here, because it, it, there are a lot of different branches for this discussion. But in terms of this particular piece, Mike says very specifically in that Georgetown speech, which is available uh, online, uh, he says it was an activist project. He said it was different from other things that he's done. And one of the things that's so different about it is that there is a script that he created and that was distributed and downloadable through This American Life. And I wonder if it hadn't been Mike Daisy giving this speech. I mean, if this play was available as a play, which it was, and if you saw some college student in a college town saying, I went to China and I met this person, wouldn't you know that it was a play in a way that you don't when Mike Daisy himself is delivering it? And is that a factor in this conversation? Sorry, I know I'm throwing a lot of things out there, but uh, I think, can, can the artist answer the first yes. question? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'll jump in as artist number artist number one. Um, I think uh, I think I, I basically uh, agree with what what Peter said, but then I'm going to say I disagree, which is I think there there are different rules for theater that engages reality and has some overlap with journalism and journalism per se. Uh, and then I'll get into the nuances. But uh, I think ultimately I, I fundamentally agree with, with Oscar's statement that whatever the work is, that there's an explicit or an implicit contract made with the audience in the frame of the work that tells the audience uh, the relationship of the work to actual fact. Um, and so within the world of what's called documentary theater or theater based on memoir or verbatim theater or theater drawn from interviews or uh, investigative theater, which is how I often describe uh, what I do, or all the, all the many different forms in that world, um, they all live on a, on a pretty broad spectrum, I would say, uh, from one pole, which is, uh, I would say, that theater's really functioning as journalism. Like there's, I think, a, a poll where uh, the, the frame of the play, the contract with the audience is saying, this actually happened, I witnessed this, uh, this story is true, um, I went to such and such place, I saw a big blue elephant, and you want to believe that, that the agreement is, you know, that big blue elephant was really there. Uh, and, and then at the other end of the spectrum, there's, you know, that which is inspired by, uh, by fact, but has, has some creative uh, license, or a lot of creative license. And, and I think knowing that, I think that's why it's very interesting to bring this into the context of theater and to let theater talk about what questions have been raised by, the, by this controversy. Because I don't think you can make a blanket statement that says, well, there's one, there's one set of rules for theater and another set of rules for, for journalism. So ultimately, I agree in the sense that I think there is theater which purports to take uh, a similar relationship to fact as journalism does. And if it takes that relationship, then it's made a contract and it should stick to that contract. Um, at the same time, I would say there's, you know, I uh, maybe just to give one example from my own work is I've, you know, I have done work in which everything in the story is completely true, and at the same time, uh, it would not pass the standards of journalism, because you know there might be a composite character, there might be something that somebody says that it comes out out of the voice of a character that's very subjective. And I think I've framed it so the audience is looking at that with a critical eye. But because it's theater, I don't then fact check it immediately after with another character coming on and saying, you know, that evidence might not be so. Um, so well, there's all sorts of nuance, but, but I agree you've got to stick to your, your contract. I think the last point that you just alluded to is particularly important about that, you know, that one of the standards of journalism is that you're presenting, supposedly, an even-handed point of view rather than a subjective opinion and making an argument. And I think probably as a person here whose work is the furthest to the journalistic end of the documentary theater type, like, the exonerated is fact-checked. 
it comes from, you know, it's first person accounts, but it's also first person accounts that are supported by thousand pages long court transcripts that we've read. And so it, it ha and it's been read by lawyers for libel issues, right? We went through all of those things that you're supposed to do in the making of the play. It still is absolutely in no way is it a piece of journalism. It's making an argument. It's telling, it's, it's making an argument through telling a story. And I think that's something different from what journalists do. Even if you're using the tools of journalism and even if you're being really fully rigorous about the facts. Though I would, I mean, I would throw in, I don't, maybe you guys can, can help in terms of nomenclature, but there's, there's certainly journalism that makes an argument, you know, that yes, might be true. in the form of a documentary film or TV show or, or even a, you know, a, a sort of feature article that is intending to persuade or is intending, you know, especially if it's an expose or a, you know, sort of whistleblowing article, uh, which, which I think has to hew even more to the standards of journalism. Sure. If you're putting you sure. know, a story out there with a point of view. And when I saw you the exonerated in, when I saw the exonerated in Washington, um, there were huge numbers of walkouts in the theater, and I think they were mostly Justice Department lawyers. But um, yeah. <laughs> but but I mean, you know, I mean, so it been even though that was yeah. know, clearly that had a point of view. I wonder if what we're talking about going back to what Adam uh, mentioned is this was this a, a crime of labeling? Is that what we're really talking about? Is the fact that if he had not crazily demanded that the program say this is a work of nonfictions, you know, I mean, leading us all right down a, 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 a misguided path, uh, is that really what I the big so. problem? Is I that think really so. the big problem? I mean, I think, you know, in, in, in the days after this broke, I was involved in, as we probably are, all were many Facebook debates about this. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and initially, I was making the argument that the mistake happened when the interface with This American Life started to happen. And then I had missed, when I saw the play, I had missed in the program the page that said this is a work of nonfiction and somebody alerted me to that and I was like, oh, well, then that's a different story. I think, I think it is a crime of labeling. I think it, it goes back to this contract question. It's, and as you said, this kind of work exists on a broad spectrum. There are all different kinds of permutations and I think the, the important thing is to be explicit with your audience about what it is that you're doing, where, how much of it is fiction, how much of it is composite, how much of it is actually the words that real people said and, and fact-checkable, et cetera, and to stick with that. And I think, I mean, I honestly, I think this piece would have had the exact same impact that it had and done the beautiful work that it has done in the world if he had not, without him having to claim that it was nonfiction. Because the larger issues that he gets at, which are the really important thing here, are all unassailable. The only part of it that's fictionalized is what he saw with his own eyes. Can I jump in on that? Yeah. Um, I think I think I, I agree with you that I think it would have it would have been a very powerful piece. Uh, and I don't know what's accurate and what's not accurate. Or and there's things that Mike says are accurate, which the, the sure. translator says are not that's accurate. Cute. So I'm not I'm not going to go there. Um, but I do think there are some similarities with. Um, the you know Stephen Glass and Jason Blair and some of these other you know prominent fat blurry truthy moments um, where the culture comes down on it really hard because a piece has has really 
risen to some prominence and the, and the particular aspects of the story that, that have really fueled that prominence are the facts in question. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that, that the, 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 I mean, just the so big time, yeah. time, just finish. Uh, uh, because I think, you know, one of the biggest shocking things I feel like I walked away with was, my God, like, Mike just went there and stood out the gate, at the gates and met a 13-year-old, like a child laborer, and clearly, like, there's this huge story that the rest of the world's journalists are so completely lazy because they didn't even mm -hmm. just walk up to the gate and right. meet the kids. Mm -hmm. Right. That's and, awesome. Right. That's awesome if you made that up. That's awesome. <laughs> 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 like, I mean, this is... <laughs> I, I haven't talked to anyone, I haven't talked to anyone who agrees with me on this. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I feel that... <laughs> That there is a contract that you have with your audience, and the contract actually is not what everyone is assuming it is about ethics and truth, but actually that you will do whatever you can, whatever your power is, to to make their experience feel valid and to um, to inspire them to then dream the conversation forward and the culture forward, right? And if that means I have to lie to my audiences, I will. Butt face lie to them. I will make up everything. I will tell you I'm telling the truth while I'm lying to you. I don't care. And that is my contract that I have with my audience is that no matter what, no matter what, in this room, we all have to believe what is happening right now. And, um, or, or at least think that, yeah, well, yes, that we have to believe what's happening. So I, I think these are tools that we use as theater artists. And I, and I actually don't believe that docudrama, no. That's not true. I don't believe that non-fiction theater exists. Well, it's hard. Can I just ask one, one question, which is, um, uh, have, you, have you ever done a work um, that you, where you've convinced the audience that something is true, uh, and you've lied, and that lie has real-world consequences that affect other people? Um, I mean, what do you mean by real world consequences? Like, 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 like my family, or you know, <laughs> like, or, like, you like, know. like labor standards. This is, I think, the, this is, I think, where this this conversation should go now because it's no longer about that distinction. Mike Daisy's argument now is he's done what he said in Georgetown is he's done more good than uh, the, you know the, the small lies were worth it because he's done all this good, right? And uh, in raising awareness of Chinese labor standards. If this is the, the, the question, then we need to examine how much good he's done and how much bad he's done and how much, how much what casualties there are. And today, I happen to do some reporting on this. Uh, and I'd like, to, I'd like to share, this is my, my, my homage to Mike Daisy. Yesterday, in yesterday's uh, news, this is a, I doubt anyone else subscribes to this paper. It's called The People's Daily. The People's Daily is the Chinese Communist government's mouthpiece. Okay, there's an article in yesterday's paper that the headline is U.S. media's report on Chinese sweatshop extremely irresponsible. Now the take, the fascinating thing about this, this is the take of this writer is not that Mike Daisy is some uh, unique character who lied to his audience. This story quickly pivots to making the point that this is generally true of Western journalism's treatment of Chinese labor conditions. It says that it's based on stereotypes of, of their culture. It has, a, it has an expert uh, who they, they quote, which is something that Mike doesn't do. Uh, if journalism's credibility, including the New York Times expose, recent expose, 
uh, is damaged by this work of art, that's significant. What, who else's credibility was damaged? Today I called up two people from Human Rights Watch who dedicate their lives to this issue. They don't, they don't this, is not, this isn't something they're dabbling in. Mike in Georgetown says he didn't care about labor issues until he started doing this. Both of them said uh, this piece undermines their work. A person who specializes in China, okay, who couldn't care, be more passionate about Chinese labor conditions says, look, Chinese government is now gonna say what we do uh, you know, you can't trust. So if you're, if you're sacrificing the credibility of journalists, if you're sacrificing the credibility of people who are, and uh, um, people who are you know, human rights workers, is it worth it? And then the question becomes, the, the, the narrative that Daisy is now telling is fascinating to me, and it's focused on journalists. And, I, and this is where my original reaction, which is sort of sadness, turns into something uh, else, which is that his story now is the reason he embellished is because he went to Shenzhen, and there was all this attention in newspaper articles, and then the media cycle ended, and there, was, and there was no more. And he says, no one is talking about these issues. This story dies in the West. And then he says that, according to the New York Times article, uh, the 2012, he says, I set the emotional landscape for that New York Times expose to land. I've, I've seen no evidence that that's true. Second of all, just through a Google search, I've discovered in 1996, 97, the Daily Mail uh, did a huge expose of Foxconn, which led to concrete changes. In 2010, the Times did many, many stories on this. I'm not sure how much, you know, how much you know, changes there are. I called up my brother, who's a, a historian who focuses on uh, Vietnam. He says that there is a massive amount of scholarship uh, academic, every university has 12 people working on China, and the uh, labor conditions and a critical take on labor conditions, he said, isn't incidental. It's the core of what they do. And he sent me, there's a Google, I didn't even know this, Google Scholar. I printed it out. There's articles, you know, for days on this. Now you could say, well, that, that, that's obscure, no pays attention. He, uh, my days went on Bill Maher. Well, one of my brother's students uh, went to a Nike factory in Vietnam. He found out uh, he had leaked a document that uh, had similar situation of labor conditions. Nike let him in, completely changed. They, he worked with the New York Times, and change happened. In Mike Daisy's Georgetown speech, he makes an argument about change. He says if you change the metaphor, that's how activism happens. I think that's bullshit. I think there's people here who really did make change, and their change is dependent on credibility and trust, not on money or power. It depends on money and trust. And what really, I enjoyed Oscar uh, Eustace's statement, and it's a very different than the Willie Mammoth statement. Willie Mammoth's statement was, when Mike Daisy made his trip to China, the US was barely focused on the appalling conditions for China workers. That's not true. Academics, Human Rights Watch, all that, that's not true. Then he says, we blithely ignored the fact that China, uh, that, that apple. I would be offended if I spent my life doing that. And then he says, in a, in a passive voice, which I find offensive, <laughs> letters, letters were written, Stories reported and Apple actually committed to revealing a list of suppliers investigating its supply chains, implying that Mike Daisy did that when actually it was after the Times expose came out and did it. At the end of the day, my last point is that one thing theater people and journalists share is a belief in the importance of language. And you learn in plays like by Carol Churchill and Edward Albee and David Mamet how imprecise language can be very powerful and deceptive. And what I hear from you know, the Ped Woolly Mammoth and what Mike Daisy is arguing, they sound like characters in a pinter play. Uh, and I, I think that's a cat, that, that upsets me. Just to play devil's advocate for a minute, not that Mike Daisy is the devil, actually I don't think that he is. Uh, yeah, I mean, can we all just agree that this is a guy that you know, is trying to do good things in the world? 
Yes. And also, I think we can agree, anyone who's seen Mike's work can agree that he is a superb storyteller and artist. I've admired his work for years. He's an extraordinary playwright and performer. And those things, I think, are not have not been in contention. But uh, I want to make a few distinctions or just bring up some possible counter-arguments there. You said that uh, that this, that's too bad because the monologue would have been as effective some other imaginary way. I'm really not sure that that's true. Uh, and I'm not sure that these articles and these um, journal studies and the rest of them would have been as effective with the popular culture in mind uh, as this was. The things that people were moved by in this story were some of these fabricated details. Were the child, were the old man with the broken hand, were they, the, 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 the workers who had been poisoned by an hexing. It's not that these people don't exist, by the way. It's that uh, they didn't exist in Mike Daisy's encounters. So what we're talking about really is a, a part of the story that's <coughs> fictional, but that part is the memoir part. That's right. Not necessarily, I mean, there are factual inaccuracies. You're not going to meet that many child laborers and then get a random sample inside of a factory. But on, on the aggregate, I mean, the, the, what it falls down to is that he falsified the memoir parts of this monologue. And we don't mind falsified memoirs generally. You were even making that distinction earlier, the difference between uh, facts and personal experiences and the different standards that apply to them. When, when This American Life has David Sedaris on, and he tells elaborate fantasies about his childhood full of dialogue and full of completely reconstructed or fabricated incidents. That's all true. That's uh, all true. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 it but it's not. Uh, and, uh, and I think we all kind of know that it's not. And people have written articles to that effect, but no one cares because it's, 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 it's history. Um, so, uh, but the parts of this monologue that were fabricated were the parts that were Mike Daisy's history. So for me, the question is, does, does that issue change? Do, does, the, does the bar get raised? when you are dealing with a larger issue, like Chinese labor or, and I'll, I'll go there, love and love be damned, the Holocaust or something like that. No, but really, because I, I mean, sidetrack, but you know, I, I got into a little contretemps a few years ago over a play that was on Broadway that was a nonfiction-based play, which had a lot of invented stuff and which I was offended by. Because I felt like the Holocaust is too important to lie in connection with the Holocaust memoir. It, it feeds the Holocaust denial. Doesn't sound like you. I know. Uh, but, but, you know, it was. Uh, it feeds Holocaust denial, and there's already too many people out there who want to believe that. And so you endanger things when you make up stories about the Holocaust. Uh, so the question is, uh, you know, and so I'm genuinely torn. Does it mean, when you're dealing with big issues, does it mean that you are no longer allowed to write in a dramatic way, the same way that you would write about any other issue? And does that mean that, does it, that tie it, it depends what your contract with the audience is, and it depends what your project is, and what you're attempting to do. I, I wouldn't make a blanket statement that one can't write about historical issues and riff on them, or make stuff up if you admit that that's what you're doing, and if you're open about that. I, at all, I think that would be a sort of absurd thing to say. But if what you're doing is a kind of activist project with your art, and if you have an aim of creating change in a specific way that is going to impact, have real world consequences, then I think it gets into a lot of what you articulated so well, which is that yes, then you have a larger responsibility to the real people out there in the world who are going to be affected by the work that you're doing, because that's what you're trying to do, right? If I'm, if I'm writing a documentary play about innocent people who were on death row or about civilian 
Iraqis experiencing the war there, I have a responsibility to those people because I'm, I'm taking on their stories and I'm making something with their stories and it doesn't belong to me. So I believe that yes, then in that case, I have extraordinary responsibility to be really rigorous with my sense of personal ethics about that. I don't fault Mike Daisy for fiction, if he had admitted it, for fictionalizing aspects of the memoir part of his story. What the only thing I fault him for, and I say this with respect for his body of work as an artist, is for not being forthright about the fact that he was doing that from the beginning. Like I said, I don't think the piece would have lost anything if he said, look, I compressed the timeline, I put myself in some places where I wasn't there, because then it wouldn't have caused people to question what else in this work isn't holding up, because he is taking on very serious and very real things that deserve the utmost respect and care. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do think that um, one of the major debates in this is actually, um, did Mike Daisy's piece ask uh, questions, or did it provide uh, periods and exclamation points, right? That's the, I mean, that seems like, did we leave the theater questioning the world, or did we leave the theater with all the answers? And I've personally, uh, left with more questions and, and being inspired to find out things for myself and or maybe I'll go and take a trip to China and I've actually been thinking about making a piece about China and I've been, you know like so so as a result uh, I'm inspired to go find out for myself and that's to me what theater is supposed to do um, and and if we go to the theater to be told the facts um, I I'm not quite sure I'm interested in the theater. But I think this kind of theater is doing something that is a combination of those two things. I think it's asking us to engage with the concrete facts of the world we live in using a different part of our minds than we ordinarily do and engaging our hearts in a way that we don't ordinarily do. That's the storytelling part. That's the empathy part, right? And the power of nonfiction theater, which I do think exists, is in its ability to meld those two things. And it's, as we all can see, it's, it's very a, complicated it's and fraught territory. It's a problem also if, if the context is not consistent and, and it is not clear to people. I've had people say to me, it's not theater to me what he's doing, it's a lecture. Right. Um, you know, which takes it in a whole other way. I'm just. Well, Wilson said to me, it's a play of the playwright, calls it a play. I, I, I'm not, that's, that's fine for the, to self define that way, or how open you want to define it, but it's, it's not clear to your audience. And, uh, well, maybe that's and our failing as theater artists, that we're always expecting uh, our audiences to um, be theater artists. And, and, and a failing as, I think, audience members and critics that, look, a story is a powerful thing. He really did. I actually think there's some, little, there's some weird parallels between Mike Daisy and Steve Jobs uh, in that Steve Jobs made beautiful things that ha and inspired a huge fan base. And in so doing, he, d he created these, work, these, these conditions that, were, that are really troubling. He was not transparent. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't want people to know about it. And when he was challenged on by people like Mike Daisy, he either hedged or he basically said, although I don't know if he said this, but I assume this is what he would say, is that it was sort of the industry standard, which it was. Or Mike Daisy 
makes really beautiful things. The difference between Mike Daisy and Stephen Glass is Mike Daisy is one of the greatest artists in American theater. That's why all these people are here. It, it, this, is a, this is a major thing because Mike Daisy has unique gifts. And Mike Daisy's critique of Steve Jobs is that he should have led because he was one of the few people who could lead. I would argue that Mike Daisy is one of the few storytellers in the American theater who could be 100% truthful and be just as powerful because I've seen 10 of his shows or whatever, and the guy is very gifted. He could, he could lead. He wouldn't have to say, oh, just theater. It feels very much like, like saying, okay, this is just what everyone else does. No, Mike Daisy is unique. Yeah, though, I, well, uh, piggybacking on that, but I, and I think speaking to what Jessica was just saying, that uh, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree that when you, when you are working in theater and presenting what you're doing as nonfiction, and particularly if it's something that involves other people's real lives and whatever larger resonances come out of that, they do have you know, a, a very particular set of, of ethical standards that in many ways you have to invent, invent. It's like right. they're not they're not like laid out they're in not a handbook. Existing. Yeah. Necessarily. So, you know, you do you do invent and you make mistakes and then sometimes somebody tells you like you really screwed that up and you got that wrong about me and you have a conversation and you right. fix it or, or 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 you can't or whatever. Uh, but the the point I was gonna make is that uh, when you are working with the actuality of real life that oftentimes it is not convenient, and it doesn't f sometimes fit into a wonderfully moving, impactful drama. Uh, and I will say, I mean, this is just my personal thing, but uh, what I get out of working with real life is I actually find that I encounter greater complexity uh, in the real life subject than what I experience most often in the theater. And so many times the plays that I've, that I've worked on that do engage real life uh, create a certain dissonance with the audience because their expectations are confounded or sometimes disappointed. And sometimes people get angry and will say, well, what is your point of view? What is your point of view? Like it was there and then it went there and then I thought this person was that and then they went over there and it was like, guess what? <laughs> That's life. That's life and you actually... <laughs> and, and welcome to journalism. Well, I'm working in journalism, and I think that there's that there's something in the uh, in the backlash, the anger that this incident has caused. I think from journalists, I'm now speaking for journalists, like I know, but uh, but I'm guessing, but from from journalists and f you know from other from artists that have maybe worked in in some sort of this field. Because part of what you know has makes Mike so powerful, his monologue so powerful, and then certainly with this one, I think contributed to its the sort of juggernaut of its impact on the culture was how dramatic and profound and moving some of those stories are, and and they were extra profound and they were extra moving because you were fully convinced that they were were real. And I think that is why the betrayal feels so strong. Uh, and now I'm just, can I just want to throw in another thought? Can I do that? Sure. Um, just, and I think one of the things that I'm really sad about when it comes to this story is in watching what was happening with, with Mike's show and, and really liking Mike and, and really believing in him and just seeing this. 
uh, artist take a really important story and push it into the center of culture and be on the news and on chat shows and in the mainstream press and, and be present as a, a voice in our social discourse and was really central. Like he, he really got himself in a central position as an artist, which doesn't happen very often in our society. And I felt like doors opened because of that piece and bridges were, were built that I'm afraid are now, if not completely burned, like smoky. But this is, the, this is why I'm bringing up these questions because, and why I keep on returning to them. I'm not sure that I agree with everything that I'm saying, but I, want, I think that they need to be said. <laughs> I do. I do. No, no, I mean, I'm throwing them out because I think that they, they need to be said because I think they're, they're important questions. I think that uh, I agree with you. I think that uh, real life is complicated. And part of the Part of the problem with getting big stories like this one out is that it's too complicated. People read these journal studies that you're talking about, or even these New York Times articles from two years ago that you're talking about, and it seems like it's a wash. Uh, you know, this one says that, this one says that, and yes, I've heard there's labor there, but maybe you know, they, maybe the laborers were falsifying the documents because they wanted something, and the, the Apple people say, well, we're trying to find out more, and they're, they're working in good faith, and everyone else is doing it, and it's an industrializing economy, it's at the beginning stage, can we really expect them? What about the Marxist dialectic of progress? Um, you know, all of these, all of these things, they're really, and so you, and, and that's what, that's why you end up finding all these excuses and complications not to be paying attention to this issue. Um, and uh, it does, if you're smart and you're interesting and you're engaged, yes, all these things are fascinating, but for most people, including me, uh, it doesn't grab you the same way as it does when you see it dramatically, when you think about that hand, when you think about those kids. And, and that's, I mean, whether you agree with them or not, that seems to be what Mike was trying to do. And the, the alternative to that, and this is why I bring it up, and this is why I worry, because I worry that in the backlash against this, um, and in the, uh, the, the urge to fact check everything, that, that will come out of this, in theater, not on NPR, in theater, that we're going to starve out some of the most beautiful things in this genre. Um, I'm worried who's going to do the fact checking well, in theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, mean, I, 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 I think that's. I don't think that's something to worry about for a couple of reasons. One, compare these. Well, you're not journal. writing it. What? You're not writing it. I'm. The, I'm sitting there on my computer, going second guessing myself. And the worst thing that you can do as an artist is to have some, be self conscious. It kills creativity. It's very different. No, no. But I think we can get around that. That, of course, that's absolutely true. But I think we can get around that trap by just saying that the bottom line ethical responsibility is to be honest and forthright with your audience about what it is that you're doing. I don't think it's about don't make something up. It's about if you make something up, say it's made up. It's, all, it's also it's also not that different. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like, like, let me give you an example. Journalists want to tell a good story too. We really do. In fact, we want to be entertaining too. Mm -hmm. uh, last May, I heard about Mike Daisy's show. I thought there were things inaccurate about it. I emailed him about it. We had a, a email exchange back and forth. So a lot of that was off the record. Mm -hmm. I would love to, when I wrote my story on it, print about it. About the show? But the show. I, we had an off record which, which would have been made a better story that I wrote if I could include the off record stuff. But I wouldn't do that because that would hurt my credibility. Those are little choices. Oh, yeah, that, that journalists make all the time. In the same way that an actor say, oh, you may be a great performance, but it doesn't fit into the rest of the show. The fact is that I think 
it's, it's, I, I think it's false to say, I think that actually there's more similarities than you think. And the danger is, is that as successful as this show was, and as big a deal as it was, and I totally agree with Steve, I remember writing a Facebook thing saying when Apple made this announcement, I said, believe it or not, a theater person has something to do with this, and I was very proud. Uh, but as big as this that was, the scandal's bigger. The scandal is bigger. And I think the, the, the uh, more, a lot of theater is, you know, let's, let's be real, it's, it's small. And the, uh, the reach of the scandal is much wider. Why do you think that? Because uh, the number, it's, you know, it went national in terms of press, in terms of This American Life. And Mike Daisy is now, a, you know, one of the things I feel the most sad about is what if Mike Daisy wants to do another show that, about the real world, which I hope he does. He did wonderful, he's done wonderful things about the real world before. The audience, I think, I, I, are they going to trust him again? Uh, in the same way. He'll use his tools to make them trust him. And that may be that he has to lie to them again. Fair enough. I, I mean, I didn't, you, look, I was raised in a Christian family where we were told that uh, truth is a synonym of God, you know, and that was the most important thing ever. And if you lied, you're, it's, it's evil for you to lie. And so my whole life, every single day of my adult life, I've been confronted with the fact that I have to lie to people, right? And, and that you too, every, every single person here, every day, we lie in some way, right? And, um, and so, and I always feel guilty about it every single time, even if it's to do something good for somebody, I always feel guilty about it. And I got involved in the theater, not because of this, but this is a great benefit, because I can lie and not feel guilty about it. <laughs> and this, I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny, actually. I mean, it, it, it's like, this is, this is the difference between journalism and theater. You did not get involved in journalism so that you could lie. I got involved so that I could make up shit and, and take people and, and, and get to something inside of them as a result of making something up. But do you call what you do documentary or nonfiction? No, I don't well, believe then, in nonfiction theater. Right. Well, so I that, but that's that. Goes but back I do to tell. Point. I do tell stories that happen, and I and I change shit all the time. Well, but have, you admit it. I have well, I don't so actually so admit it on stage or in the program. Wait a minute now. But if you were, uh, I wish I had. I don't just. just, just <laughs> 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 okay, no, but if you part of the performance is. But, oh, sorry, uh, if you. Uh, if you were to see uh, the exonerated, did you see the exonerated? I did not. Okay, well imagine, imagine yourself. It's too busy making shit up. Oh, it's good. It's good. You did. You did. Famous people at the main monologue. And you started though, honey. So I'm not. It's okay. It's okay. And and without without getting into like a dull discussion of semantics, but uh, imagine you saw a play, call it the Exonerated, where a bunch of people were were reading these texts. You were told these were taken from transcripts, and that the people that these actors are representing are real people who were in jail, who were in, in who were innocent and were exonerated. Would you would you? You can maybe say that that's non that there's no such thing as nonfiction theater, but would you would you come away with the belief that those people that were represented that those stories were were true? Um, I would I would come away with the belief that uh, the questions in the play that I was being asked were true. 
Does that make sense? But it does make sense. It does make sense, but I think the ethical responsibility comes in when you acknowledge the fact that the, th the thing that is being utilized to raise those questions are people's real lives, right? I guess I just don't see the difference between if I'm playing um, a lily in a play that is dealing with uh, a desire to be loved, I don't see that as different from telling the story of somebody who actually was to have the desire to be loved, you know, and, and somebody who's being oppressed against. I don't see that as different. Um, I mean, I, I get you on a philosophical I, level, I but in one of those examples, there is a real human being, and in the other one, there is not. But there is, I guess that's what I'm saying, is there is a real human being in that flower that's wanting to be loved because it's... Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you philosophically. But say, say you had a coworker. But the flowers okay. are up in NPR. You had this coworker. No, I was like, I was like, I don't know why that's bad. I don't really make doctor drama. And now I realize I'm the I'm the antagonist. I'm pulling this. I'm pulling this out of my butt. But so you, there, there's someone. There's some coworker you have you don't like. Um, her name is Sylvia Peterson, um, and she works at the Gap with you. Um, this sounds true. In this, in this, no, I never worked at the Gap. Um, you know, in this town where everybody knows Sylvia Peterson, uh, and you do a performance, and you say this is this is an actual story. You convince the audience that it's actually true, and then you you give a very compelling, truthful argument that you say on stage, on and off, that it is true that Sylvia Peterson uh, beats her kids. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a fiction, but there is a real woman named Sylvia Peterson who does not beat her kids. Right. And you've convinced the whole town of S Springfield. Um, <laughs> but she's a yeah. child in <laughs> and the truth is, the truth is, is just she's a gossip, you know, or she's, she's, you know, um, or she like steals your lunch out of the refrigerator. Um, but you, you've convinced your community that she's a child beater. Um, I think you can't, it would, I like, and I know that's kind of ridiculous, but, I, and I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying on a sort of, like, on a philosophical level about reality and, and art, but I, 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 I will just say I do believe that fundamentally, like, there, there's different, different ethics that come into play. They're not set in stone by God, they're whatever the ethics are, but there well, are some that's ethics. That's the key, right? Nothing is set you know, in stone that, by that, God. That's what's important. There's ethics that a person has to figure out. And then, you have, and then you can debate them, and you can say, like, I think your ethics I, I, I also am sympathetic to it. I mean, you know, some of my favorite movies are, I you know, heard of one of horror movies in the 70s, where the convention in the beginning was to say, this movie was based on a real story at Texas Chainsaw. And obviously they weren't, right? They, they were lying, and they, they regularly lied, and I loved it, right? I loved being fooled, I loved being deceived. But those movies have a name, exploitation movies. Now, they're great, and I love them, and I, you will not find me apologizing for them at all, but... <laughs> We think about it has a different moral authority than an Arthur Miller play. Yeah, that's my meaning to me, or the exonerated. Um, and but if Mike called this play at your propaganda, everyone would judge it and not go, 
Right. So this is the question. Um, I'm, we're going to go to a Q&A from the, the audience in just a moment, but I just want to throw this uh, out here because uh, I do feel like the labeling, I feel like I, look, all of us were disappointed, and I think most of us would agree that Mike made mistakes along this process. And uh, for those of us who like his work and who are, are, feel that this cause is important, it was a bit of an Elliot Spitzer or you know, Anthony Weiner moment, you know, like, oh, God. <laughs> How's that? Well, a little bit. like, why does it have to be, like, you know, we, we want, want you to succeed, we want this to work, and then you go and do this stupid thing that, that, that produces it away. Uh, and so it's frustrating, and, you know, you get mad at it, and I'm, I'm mad at Mike in many ways over this thing. But the, uh, but ultimately, I just think it's important, because there's been this huge, like, public shaming, like cultural revolution, go out there, Mike, and talk about how you're wrong, and then everyone, and the, and the reaction, and the, we must be more uh, assiduous in our fact-checking, and all of this, and I, I worry about this, because for me, this is a crime of degree. There are a lot of gray spaces in here. We're talking about the difference between uh, memoir and reportage in ways that are very slippery, even in the examples that we've used tonight. Uh, some of these would be, even the examples that, that, that the stories that, that This American Life talks about, D David Sarris doesn't get on before and say the following story is fictionalized. He doesn't. And the story doesn't do that. And if he did, then it would ruin the story. Uh, and, and if Sarah Silver got up and said, okay, by the way, I'm going to talk about the jokes, but just so you know, they're not really true, then, then the jokes wouldn't be funny. And I feel like maybe there's an implicit contract beyond what's said anywhere, I mean, just throwing this out, that Mike is a theater artist and a playwright and not a journalist. And maybe, instead of being like a, a, a bad journalist who's trying to pass himself off as a, as a theater person, uh, maybe he's a theater person who passes himself off as a journalist. And it's when, I mean, awesome. at what point, no, just, just throwing, yeah, just throwing it out there, but at what but, point does his performance of this play stop? That's, you know, but that's the question, it, Adam, and it's not, that's, I mean, I think we have to consider, you know, where do we go, where do we, what happens going forward now? I mean, we, you know, we can, we can all, you know, luxuriate in our bile, you know, over this, for, and we can go on and on and on, although that would be disgusting. But, uh, but, but what I'm trying, to, what I think is that going forward, what happens, and I do think some of this goes to the question of what Mike does, and how much we allow him to go forward. If he becomes a shamed individual and a figure of fun, the way you know, I saw these you know Gawker you know sort of amalgam pictures with him with Jason Blair, and if we just if we just turn him into a fabulous and we, we make a joke out of him, I think we lose an opportunity for him to tell us where we go from here, and I don't think he's lost that authority to do that. I mean, I heard him this week at Georgetown, and I took a totally different. Um, feeling away from that than Jason did. I thought he was trying to make a, I thought he was trying to understand what he was, had done and articulate it in a way that people could start to at least empathize with what he was trying to do. I mean, that's you know part of the uh, process of healing for him too. I mean, the, the people who want him, you know, they want to stone him at this point, is yeah, not you. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, really, from a journalistic I, point of view, Peter, I'm surprised by what you're saying. This not journalistic. He's not a journalist. Mammoth stood by him. They're still producing his play. I'm oh, sure. But they knocked look, him at the same time. They're going to look. But I'm going to say, Jason, I let you finish. Let me just finish. I think at this point, the fact that Woolly Mammoth is letting him do the show. And as you said at the very beginning, and I don't, God, I don't want to be the apologist for Mike Daisy. That's not, you know, that's not my, my job here. But you said at the very beginning, you know, that, that he's an evolutionary kind of uh, extemporaneous uh, storyteller. Well, let's hear what the story, what happens to the story now? 
you know, it, it, I mean, I'm curious to find out. Maybe the problem is that an audience won't want to. And that's going to be a whole other thing. Or maybe more, more than ever. I would, I would not bet against Mike Daisy making a comeback at all. At all. I'm sure he'll be able to find places to play, and he's talented enough to do many, many different things. The question is, I, the reason I take it, I, you know, that, I, I, I saw that, uh, that Georgetown speech as a journalist. Because the narrative he told was, this began because there were no journalists in Shenzhen. They let, or the, the, the news cycle. Well, this part of the story. In fact, in fact, in a way that we were talking about small lies for bigger truth, and that point is the exact opposite. The media cycle did shift. The New York Times didn't have a story every day. People Magazine didn't stop covering George Clooney and start covering China. The, the, he's right. That's a small truth. But the, the larger lie is that many people have been, including a lot of hardworking foreign correspondents who I have a hell of a lot of respect for. After, then he says the reason he put lies in is because interviewers interpreted his show wrong, asked him questions, and he didn't correct them. And then he ends the show, he actually ends the show with another like criticor, like yet saying, it's okay if journalists uh, vilify me as long as they tell this factory story, which they're, tell which they're telling. Now, so I'll be honest with you, I do have a more personal reaction because I had this exact conversation with Mike a year ago in which I patiently tried to explain the journalist's point of view, um, which which I think, you know, I think we, we deserve criticism too. We deserve a lot of criticism. But that's different than, than lying about how much we've done on this very difficult, uh, very difficult issue. And if in pursuit of that, it hurts the credit. I mean, if you read that Times expose, that guy told a human story, okay, that was 100% true, that was checked out, that had real people, that was dramatic, that was powerful, that was moving, all right? If that, and I know Mike respects that story, that story a lot. If that story has less power, okay, I am a journalist, all right? I'm a journalist. I, I, I'm a theater critic, but I'm a journalist. All right? That's my first story. That would be a real shame, and I believe Mike Daisy thinks that would be a real shame. Let's go to questions from the audience. Uh, well, can I just say really quick, I just wanted to say that um, I didn't see your play, but I, but I, I think it's freaking awesome that no, I mean, I, I think it's, like, like her, play, her play actually changed policy, and that is something that um, not many people do. So I just, I was making fun of that, but I really just wanted to make it clear enough. Um, so, uh, Sorry, sorry. Sorry. Hi. Um, Hi. Uh, I have a question for you, uh, and it's um, about your comment that his his lies were lies of the memoir portion of his play rather than the uh, you know news portion. Uh, two of the things that have been cited are his statement that the guards outside the factory have guns, and that there are twenty four hour surveillance cameras in the dorms. To me, those aren't memorialized, they're, they're lies of reportage, and they're also, to me, not lies in the service of a larger truth, because if you're supposed to be inspired to understand the conditions of Chinese factories being terrible because guards have guns and cameras are on people all the time, and then you find out that that's not really true, what are you left with to understand? I thought those were lies to make his experience within the factory sound more awesome. He says now, this is where you get the, the he said, she said, uh, he, he, he says that he did see the guns, he remembers the guns, he doesn't know why the translator doesn't remember the guns. Or any reporter who has ever covered 
Right. I, I'm just saying. Peter, say there really were people. Say it's another example of a small truth to a larger lie. If he asked any expert, they would tell him that in, in China the military has guns. So it's portraying them, even if they stole some guns and went out and held guns, really one guns. It's it's giving larger. It's not interested in actually what's going on in China. The problem is the whole piece is not believable. That's the bottom line. The whole piece is discredited. There's just no no two ways about that. Yeah, and, and actually, I, I agree with you. Mark. I mean, I. I uh, as I said when I was making that point, there, there are distinctions to be made within that point. I was just trying to make a larger point there. There are factual inaccuracies that are, that are substantive within Mike's monologue, and those are the things that I found troubling about it, absolutely. Um, on, on that side, ma'am? Thanks. Um, 
so I was wondering about something I've been sort of struggling with is this idea of, of identity and the, the sort of sacredness of a first person story. Um, especially having done sort of like some some self-scripting projects where it's something inherently different about being like this is me and this is my story. It's like it goes to a place within the storyteller, I think, and then hopefully within the audience that another sort of story wouldn't. But at the same time, there are stories that aren't first-person stories that we connect with in that same way often. Um, so being that there are these small, these, these small or large details which have been fabricated, but I also sort of don't doubt exist at various places in the world, there's um, a question to me of saying Mike Daisy, this didn't happen to Mike Daisy, but his friend was at a place. And then there's this degree of separation. I guess I don't have, I don't have the question quite formulated, but, but the question, it, it's about, what is this about, about the first person versus being verifiable versus second person, third person? Yeah, can, can I, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna toss, toss back just an example. Uh, so uh, one of the shows my company worked on uh, was about the city of Colorado Springs. And we happened to be there when Ted Haggard, uh, evangelical leader, was busted for having uh, a gay hooker and uh, maybe a meth habit. Uh, and watched all sorts of shit go down around that. And, and it became a huge story that blew up across the country for like a week. Um, but we were there firsthand experiencing it and a lot of that fed into the play. And while I was there, I was told things by people in the church about other things that were alleged to have happened that were much worse than what was coming out in the news. Don't you wish you knew what those things were? <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, I mean, like I said, like it's not set in stone exactly what the ethics are, but I feel like some stuff is pretty cut and dry, whereas that's hearsay. And if I then created a character in my play who then showed up and said, this happened with me and Ted Haggard, and you know, it would be really moving stuff, and it would really be compelling on the questions of you know, what's going on in the evangelical church, it could do a lot of good, but it would have, it's hearsay and it would have been a lie and it would have been wrong. And you could have been sued. And I could have been sued. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I don't know, that might be helpful. <laughs> Sorry, sir. It works. Uh, thank you for having the panel. I'm, uh, my name is Andy Z. I'm the spokesperson for Revolution Books. And I, I, I do have to agree with something, Jessica, and that you said, Adam, there, there is a problem, in one sense, of labeling. And if he'd said this was something different, uh, in, that he'd fabricate or he'd made up certain things for a larger historical truth, and this is not little truths and big truths. We talk about the conscience of artists. What's our conscience? Who are we responsible to? To me, we're responsible to the fact that there are nets around Foxconn. This is not a lie. People are committing suicide. We're not just responsible to the discredited or the journalist who now may suffer that somebody may doubt his article. 
Do your fact checks if you're a journalist, okay? But millions of people are sweating and slaving and dying in factories in India, in China. You want to talk about your cell phone? Talk about where the coltan comes from. You know where it comes from as a journalist? Because you said you like exploitation films. Okay, do you want me to respond to that? The coltan comes from the Congo. No, but I really think we're not talking about that there is really none of the larger truths that um, Mike has brought to the stage have really been interrogated, including on the question of the, the guns of the guards. That, that I'm not sure is true that the guards there have guns, but those factories are surrounded by troops over and over again. There's plenty of documentation of that. And Mike brought this issue in front of the world where if you want to compare the coverage, that New York Times article was good, but compare all the coverage of Steve Jobs oh. idolizing him when that was based on the slave labor. Yeah, honestly, honestly. Can I respond to those? are pretty hard to get. I mean, I'll go ahead. Did you want to? But, I mean, I guess, I guess I, I, you're, you're presenting this either or. You either care about this labor or you care about Mike, you know, the fact that Mike Daisy. And I guess the, 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 what crystallizes for me today is talking to this person of Human Rights Watch. They care about this issue, okay? They care about it. They work, they dedicate their life to it. Now, wait a second, wait a second, you and me talk, okay? Now, the idea that it's a, it's a little bit more complicated idea that credibility can change, that, that the ability, the, how change is made is a complicated thing, and I think Mike Daisy can play a great role, and he could have played an even greater role if he was completely, if he didn't cut, as he said, some, if he didn't make some shortcuts. What I would like to have is that you have the academics do their thing, the journalists do their thing, Mike Daisy does his thing, and they complement each other. I don't think we're at odds. I would argue that in Daisy's defense, not a crime, where I think he has been more aggressive in his uh, criticism of journalists and academics and people who've spent their lives doing this. That's where I, uh, that, that's where I say that's gone too far. That's a casualty that I think is not worth it. You may disagree. That's my point of view. Well, and I think, I mean, I think what you're saying about the fact that we all can work together and is extremely important. There are so many different ways to make change and the way that the that real change is going to be made in the world is by storytellers working with journalists, working with human rights organizations, working with people, right, in all different forms. And I think part of that anger and frustration about this is not, I mean, certainly there's been personal public shaming of Mike that I think is just annoying and counterproductive of people being moralistic about, oh, he's an asshole because he made something up. It's not about that. It's about, it's about exactly what Jason is saying, which is that these larger issues, which are what's really important here, are the, the discussion of those it has been impeded by this. And, and people are, I think there are a lot of people that are upset because that's a real problem because the larger issues are really what we should be sitting here talking about and what we would be if there weren't these problems with the truth. But would well, and we I, and sit I, here talking about them? I'm not convinced that we would. Yeah. Well, well people, I mean, people were yeah, we, in the theater every night and walking out of the theater after the play every night, absolutely. And he was going on the news and people were watching that and talking about that with each other. So yes, I do actually think that that process was happening. And the, I mean, I, I also think, yeah, we would be here talking about Mike Daisy, but I think those of us who are making theater out there in the world and especially going into different constituencies and going into different worlds are having these conversations with all sorts of people all the time. And I have to say, I've, maybe I've said this before, I'm going to repeat myself, but 
it, it does really piss me off that I think that, that artists uh, are going to be discredited as a whole for some period of time. I think we were, uh, we were killed, doubted. We killed Lincoln at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not playing that. Those are actors. <laughs> actor <laughs> yeah. um, but, 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 sorry, just I, I, now I'm up on my soapbox, but I feel like uh, uh, artists who engage with society, we're doubted in this American culture more so than any other culture that I've visited or been in. I like do. we do not, we do not have credibility for the most part when we take on real world stuff. We are in, we are in a, a safe zone of art and how we think of art is very separate from society. And that's, I that's, will, that's, that's just, just remember, the other casualty of this is, you know, Ira Glass is not going to go to another show and go, I, I want to do a segment on this guy. Sure. I mean, it's not well, that's what happen. I'm saying. Uh, but I, I, will, that's I, will, say, I will say, I want to say, though, because I do think <laughs> it's really important that we, we have control over, as artists, working in nonfiction modes, I think about how much credibility we have also. Individually, I think if we are rigorous in our practice and rigorous with how we present our work and how we talk about our work and rigorously honest about what it is that we're doing, then I think we earn that credibility and people do trust us. But we're also invisible to so much of society well, yes. and we were really That's visible. That's a whole other conversation for, for a sure. moment there. Uh, uh, if, if I just want to say, because I actually think this is a terribly important point, and I'd love to stop talking about Mike for a second, because what Mike, Mike did a fantastic job of bringing an issue to attention. He fucked up, we can disagree about exactly how he fucked up, that's a problem. But part of the reason he fucked up is that we as a field have not refined our discussion of our practice mm -hmm. in such a way that we don't have standards. Mm -hmm. So Mike didn't have any help from a field of artists who have talked about this and stuff and said this is what our standards are. And you know, with all due respect, you know, I think it's incredibly important. Not that all art has to be fact-checked or all art has to be reportage, but for us to say we want to have a place at the table, we want to try and influence the discussions of the broader society, that means we have to hold ourselves to standards and hold each other to standards. And now, hopefully, that's what this discussion is doing. This discussion isn't about changing labor conditions in China. This discussion is about a group of theater artists saying, if the theater is going to engage with the real world and try to change the real world, we have to be sophisticated and rigorous and, and comradely about how we support and critique each other in doing that. Because if we don't set up those kind of standards, not a board, but internal in our dialogue with each other, Oscar, are you, are you going to require, you know, for some other non-fiction performance, documentation? It's the wrong question, Peter. What, what I think is every time, and this has been true for years, every time I've done a play that is documentary, we do endless checks on what is true, what is not true, what is verifiable, what is not verifiable. Did somebody actually say this? Did they not say this? Is we do we. Just as just was described with exonerant from some 30 years ago when I did execution <coughs> justice. That's what we do. We do that's fact check. So why not in this case? Um, we didn't do it because we didn't think it was necessary. We were wrong. 
We will do it in the future. That doesn't mean that we're going to fact check Ethan Lipton. Is by the way, wonderful show. Brilliant, brilliant, beautiful show about losing his job, about this economy. It's completely autobiographical. Ethan's company moved from New York to Connecticut, relocated. He lost his job. In the story, he never says New York City. He says our town, and his job relocated to Mars because land is so cheap, a penny a hectare. And the Martian taxpayers give great breaks to the company. All, just by saying that, he clearly indicated to the audience he's in the realm of fable. And at that point, we have an entirely different set of standards applied to him. Although 99% of what he says is literally true, I don't care. It's a fable. This is the interesting thing for me about this particular case. Uh, is that I've been seeing Mike's shows for years and I've liked them all. Uh, this was the one that I had the most reservations with. This was the one, I know everyone seemed to love this one, this was the one where I sat there and I thought, some of this seems phony to me. And I said in the reviews that I felt like I was being yelled at. And there, were mom there was a moment in it, there's a moment of, of real phoniness where he's pretending to crack himself up over uh, the business cards. Uh, and uh, and it, he's not a good enough actor to pull that off. And it really felt fake to me for the first time in a, in a Mike show that I had seen. But, but I guess I didn't really have that same experience of it as a pure document. Everything seems so uh, exaggerated. exaggerated. But it, it, it's sort Theatrical. of in the context of yeah, it, I felt like I was watching a compressed and I can understand that. I'd like to hear from because I think what, what Austria is really interesting and absolutely right. I think that this is a conversation that critics can, this is a conversation that has to go on with artists. How that happens, I, I don't know. But I think, from a critical point of view, I think it's really important because if you look at the last 10 years, this genre that these artists have been in is becoming more and more important, especially in terms of political theater. I mean, the most exciting political theater, which is a very important part of the American theater uh, that I've seen, and not just American, obviously English theater too, the tricycle. I mean, this is a huge, booming genre that uh, merits some serious consideration because we want to have, be able to talk politics in this theater in the public of all places, for God's sake. Um, so it's I think it's very important that these discussions and these standards for the art form are are, are set up. But uh, let's let's also just say, or I'll say for me, and I respect you, Oscar, but I, I do think that um, when I'm on stage, when I make a piece, I, I'm trying to affect the people in this room. And my goal is not to change the world and the culture. It is to is not to be the top of the culture. It is to change the people in this room. And and what I'm hearing here is that theater artists are somehow supposed to be better than movies and better than you know we're supposed to be at the top of the culture. And I'm not interested in the competition. I want to affect the people here. So that's that's very different from this other conversation. Well, we're, we're, we're out of time, uh, and this conversation has been mostly a lot of uh, philosophical groping, which has been really uh, interesting. <laughs> I, I, I would love to, you know, at some point, uh, have people together again and get more nuts and boltsy about what Oscar was saying and what those parameters might uh, be and what some of those standards might be. It may not be something that's best suited to a, a panel discussion, but it, it is something I think that we have to start thinking about. Uh, but in the meanwhile, uh, we're out of time tonight. So uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you to Oscar and John. Thank you to all of you for being here. We would like to thank the Public Theater for their donation of the space, as well as John Kemp, Gabriel Bennett, and Ariel Edwards of the Public for providing the audio.
Remember, you can visit us online at 2amt.com, and you can join the conversation anytime on Twitter using the hashtag 2AMT. You're listening to the music of Tamara Deering. I'm David J. Lore. Tune in again for more Thinking Outside the Black Box from 2AMT.